This is a podcast from the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law at UNSW. For more information, go to www.caldorcentre.unsw.edu.au. On the 18th of November 2016, the Caldor Centre for International Refugee Law hosted its third annual conference entitled From Refugee Emergency to Protracted Exile, The Role of Time in International Protection. This is a recording of the first presentation in the panel session, Creeping Crises from Emergency to Development, chaired by Dr. Eileen Pitaway, founding director of the Centre for Refugee Research at UNSW. This presentation by Frances Voon, executive manager at the Caldor Centre, is entitled Mining the Humanitarian Development Gap in Refugee Response. Where do we stand? My name is Eileen Pitaway. I'm the past director of the Centre for Refugee Research at this university. I was really excited to be asked to chair this panel and also about the title of the conference, The Role of Time in International Protection. As soon as I read that, I flipped back to Kakuma Refugee Camp in 1994, where rather naively was working with a group of women and said to them, let's discuss your culture and what's missing. What, what was very special about your culture? And one older, very angry woman stood up and said, what a stupid question. I am 45 years old. I was born in a refugee camp. My children were born in this camp. We have no future. My culture is that of refugee. As far as I know, that woman is still in that camp now, along with 20,000 other people. And sadly and tragically, that situation, that comment hasn't changed. And I think what we're trying to do in this panel is trace the meaning of time in relation to the length of time you are a refugee and what that does to you. I was also excited to have three terrific panelists who I've known for a long time. They'll challenge us to examine the notion of time involved in the title of this se session, which is Creeping Crisis. I think perhaps, as well as calling it Creeping Crisis from an emergency to development, <laughs> we could call it creeping crisis from emergency to despair. Because I'm afraid after 40 odd years in the field and working in camps and in academia, sometimes despair is the best I can find to look at what's happening. So hopefully we've got three fabulous panelists this afternoon who will help us explore ways out of that despair. They've all got huge experience as academics practitioners and activists working to bring positive change. And I always like the idea of academics being activists and having a real outcome for our work. And these three people are exceptional. Francis Voon is the executive manager at the Caldor Center for International Refugee Law. She's previously worked for UNHCR Policy Development and Evaluation Unit in Geneva she worked with Jesuit Refugee Service and the UN in the field in Bangladesh, Jordan and South Sudan. She's got a master's degree in development studies from the University of Oxford and has been admitted to legal practice and holds a Bachelor of Laws and a Bachelor of Arts with honours from UNSW. 
and I have seen Frances in the field and she is phenomenal. Stephen Castles is Honorary Professor of Sociology at the University of Sydney. Until 2009, he was Professor of Migration and Refugee Studies at Oxford and Director of the International Migration Institute. From 2001 to 2006, he was Director of the Oxford Refugee Studies Centre. His most recent research project considered the way that global forces interact with local factors to shape human mobility. He's been an advisor to the Australian and British governments and has worked for the International Labour Organization, the IOM, and the EU. A huge amount of really good applied experience. Claudia Tazreiter is Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of New South Wales, and her research focuses on forced and irregular migration, human rights, and the role of NGOs and civil society in social change and gendered forms of violence. She is the author of Asylum Seekers in the State, The Politics of Protection in a Security-Conscious World, co-author of a book, Security in Asia-Pacific, Transnational Lives, Human Rights and State Control, and co-editor of Globalization and Social Transformation in Two Culturally Diverse Societies, the Australian and Malaysian Experience. I'm now going to hand over to the three panelists as they ex examine notions of time. Francis, looking at the impact <coughs> of the gap between humanity and development on the development of the creeping crisis and what we might do about that. Stephen will challenge us to examine changes in the nature of the refugee crisis and global movement over time and to rethink the links between mobility and development and inequality and how these often blur the distinction between refugees and migrants. And finally, Claudia will invite us to reimagine the notion of crisis and the meaning of time in relationship to the refugee experience and to explore the important issue of permanent imper impermanence. Permanent impermanence and what that does to refugees. So I think we'll have a lot to think about. I've asked them to be very strict on time and I will be strict because I think there'll be some good questions at the end of the session. So I'll start by asking Francis to take the podium. Well, thank you, Eileen, and I would like to acknowledge that it was in no small part the really path-breaking work that Eileen Pittaway and her colleagues at the Centre for Refugee Research have done that inspired me to embark on the path that I did. So it's a real pleasure and an honour to be uh, with you on the panel uh, today. <coughs> Refugees are often spoken of in the language of disaster, a human tide flooding across borders, invoking a sense of emergency and crisis. Yet in terms of how we respond, how long should a refugee situation be considered a humanitarian emergency? While increasing numbers of people are newly displaced, solutions to displacement are slow to come to fruition. As a result, amongst those refugees displaced for longer than five years, the average length of displacement is over 20 years. While a quick response of food, shelter and medical assistance might save lives in the immediate aftermath of an emergency, as the length of displacement grows, the inadequacy of merely meeting refugees' basic needs becomes 
incredibly pronounced. Without access to skills development, livelihoods, and the achievement of some measure of self-reliance, refugees are left in limbo, vulnerable to harmful survival strategies, and deprived of the opportunity to live lives of dignity. This, then, is an issue of refugee protection. Yet humanitarian agencies have traditionally been ill-equipped to support local infrastructure and foster a conducive environment for sustainable livelihoods. These are typically the work of development actors whose engagement in refugee situations has been patchy at best. Yet the development implications of displacement are significant, particularly as the majority of the world's refugees come from and are hosted in developing regions. The presence of refugees may have major implications for host countries' infrastructure, labour market and economy, presenting both a challenge to and an opportunity for development. This also bears upon the search for solutions to displacement. Refugees who've had the opportunity to become self-reliant will be better placed to transition to any durable solution, whether in their country of origin, asylum or resettlement. And because many countries from which refugees flee are poor or fragile states, development is also relevant to creating the conditions for refugees to return in safety and dignity. <coughs> Clearly then, displacement is not only a humanitarian issue, but a development one. But why does this matter? I argue this is not simply a matter of terminology, but has real-world consequences. Humanitarian and development interventions invoke distinct institutions, programmatic approaches and funding mechanisms, giving rise to a so-called humanitarian development gap in responding to refugees. Humanitarian assistance is driven by the imperative to save lives, based on need, founded on the principles of humanity, independence, impartiality and neutrality. It is traditionally intended to be quick and limited, and does not seek to address the underlying causes of crisis. By contrast, development assistance seeks longer-term solutions to poverty and involves larger processes of social transformation, generally in partnership with governments and aimed at supporting national institutions and systems. The two activities also engage separate institutional architectures. Within the UN system, UNHCR was established as the lead organisation for refugees and the UN Development Program, UNDP, for development, with the Bretton Woods institutions, the World Bank and the International Monetary Fund, also playing a major role in development. These organisations have widely different institutional cultures, jargon, priorities and programs. And further, these activities draw on separate funding streams, with humanitarian funding typically being short-term only, and development funding being slower to come on stream but available for multi-year programs. Together, these differences have hampered the effective linking of humanitarian and development responses in displacement situations. Well, a recent series of historic international summits has articulated an unambiguous call for these gaps to be overcome. The New York Declaration, passed as the outcome of the UN Summit on Refugees and Migrants in September, strongly encouraged joint responses to strengthen the nexus between humanitarian and development actors, facilitate cooperation across institutional mandates, and, by helping to build self-reliance and resilience, lay a basis for sustainable solutions. 
This echoed the consensus established at the World Humanitarian Summit in May, which called for a more comprehensive response to displacement, addressing immediate needs and longer-term resilience and ensuring respect for rights. And last year, the Sustainable Development Goals committed the international community to leave no one behind in its mission to eradicate poverty, explicitly including refugees and migrants in that effort. It seems then the international community has agreed on the importance of overcoming the humanitarian development gap. But how significant is this agreement and does it represent a turning point in the way we respond to refugees? The importance of bringing a development perspective into refugee response has in fact been recognised for several decades. Looking at the history of these efforts is important to evaluating the significance of today's consensus about linking relief and development. As early as 1952, UNHCR's first High Commissioner, Gerrit Gerthardt, recognised that the protection of Europe's displaced should be understood not only as a question of legal protection, but a social and economic issue for refugee hosting states, requiring support from post-war economic reconstruction and development institutions. From the 1960s, international development assumed a much larger place in refugee response as mass displacement from post-colonial conflicts led UNHCR to launch large-scale operations in Africa and other developing regions. UNHCR worked with development actors to establish agricultural settlements where refugees received humanitarian relief to meet their immediate needs and also tools and seeds which were intended to enable self-sufficiency. The experiment failed, largely due to its paternalistic approach, which imposed a model of development based on inappropriate technologies and cash crops, designed without understanding of local context and ignoring the capacities of refugees themselves. In the 1970s, refugee hosting states called for greater so-called international burden sharing to address the demands placed by the protracted presence of refugees on their already strained economies and infrastructure. The result was the Refugee Aid and Development Approach, which targeted assistance at refugee hosting areas, aiming to benefit both refugees and local communities. While some limited results were achieved, there was a fatal lack of agreement about what burden sharing actually entailed. Host states saw it principally about increased development funding, but were unenthusiastic about recognising refugee rights, such as freedom of movement, that were needed to establish self-reliance. Donor states were reluctant to pour resources into countries that they didn't think were devoting them to durable solutions for refugees. Further, prevailing development orthodoxy required low-income countries to implement programs of structural adjustment as a condition for international loans. Many refugee hosting states were made to implement economic reforms that led to harsh social impacts such as high unemployment and rising prices for basic goods. Little wonder then that refugees came to be perceived as a burden and confined to camps without employment rights. We now know that structural adjustment didn't necessarily lead to sustained development anyway, but to short-term cycles of economic growth and contraction again with devastating impact on the poorest. The experience of this period shows that project-based approaches to development in the absence of rights protections and adequate social and economic policy settings will not lead to sustainable outcomes. In the 1990s, 
UNHCR continued to pursue development links, largely in the context of supporting the reintegration of returning refugees to their countries of origin, which were often fragile states facing insecurity, poor infrastructure and weak governments in the aftermath of conflict. Here, UNHCR's key intervention was so-called quick impact projects. These were discrete projects aimed at rehabilitating infrastructure and supporting income generating activities, such as repairing bridges, building schools and providing livestock. While these projects had many positive outcomes, they largely failed to achieve long-term impact. One reason was the failure to overcome difficulties in or differences in institutional culture and priorities between UNHCR and its main development partner, UNDP, and a lack of funding commitments from development donors, particularly uh, in fragile contexts. Another was that the projects were not sufficiently integrated into national development plans. Governments were unable to provide the personnel or supplies that were needed to put rehabilitated facilities to good use or to ensure their maintenance. The weakness of government capacity in these fragile contexts highlighted a flaw in the underlying assumption of efforts to transition from relief to development. That is, the assumption that this was a linear process along a continuum where emergency needs would end and state-led development would begin. Instead, in unstable contexts, relief, rehabilitation and development interventions may be needed simultaneously. And this points to what Jean-Francois noted this morning in terms of the inadequacy of thinking of refugee situations in terms of discrete phases. This experience again highlighted two sets of problems underpinning the humanitarian development gap. One related to poor institutional links and the other to a deeper problem in the way that interventions were themselves conceived. Since then, UNHCR has continued a series of efforts to bring development approaches into refugee response against a background of broader changes towards greater coherence and effectiveness in responding to crises. One of these was a process of UN reform aimed at improving coordination in emergency response and development activities at the country level and this included efforts to incorporate refugees into national development plans. Another is a growing recognition that crises are increasingly complex, protracted and, particularly in the face of climate change, more frequent. This is prompting an acceptance that the assumption that humanitarian interventions are normally short-term is flawed. And this calls for a more fundamental rethink of the very nature of humanitarian and development responses in order to adequately address situations where widespread and unpredictable emergency needs persist over multiple years alongside poverty and other long-term structural vulnerabilities. Further, skyrocketing needs have prompted a movement towards greater aid effectiveness, requiring reform on the part of both donors and aid agencies, encouraging greater efficiency in aid delivery and greater flexibility in financing. So where does all of this leave us today? And to what extent have we learned the lessons from past attempts? Well, there does appear to be some promise of progress and the Syria crisis seems to have forged some new approaches on these issues. The Syria Regional Refugee and Resilience Plan, or 3RP, 
sets out a strategy for responding to Syrian displacement in refugee hosting countries in the region. It incorporates both refugee and host country needs for immediate support and longer term resilience and has been formulated through partnership with host governments, UNHCR and UNDP. The 3RP has been hailed as a step forward in bringing together development and humanitarian objectives under a single multi-year plan with national government ownership, learning some of the lessons from past experience. In planning the Syria response, new collaborations between UNHCR and the World Bank have produced some careful analysis around poverty and vulnerability amongst refugees and their hosts. The concept of vulnerability encompasses not only immediate needs, but also longer-term susceptibility to shocks. Because of this embrace of both the immediate and the long-term, vulnerability may provide more, a more coherent conceptual framework for identifying objectives that are common to both development and humanitarian response, as compared to a framework that is based purely on needs, which engages mostly with current deficiencies. And studies like the ones that the World Bank and UNHCR have undertaken also provide a shared evidence base for the joint planning of responses. Ultimately, whether this results in better joined up delivery depends to a great extent on how it is implemented and importantly, whether it is sufficiently funded. And I understand that the 3RP is currently around 50% funded. One of the interesting features of the Syria crisis is that the major refugee hosting countries are not developing countries, but are middle income economies. Nevertheless, the scale of the refugee influx calls for development-like interventions to address the stress placed on host countries' economies, labour markets and public services. This has prompted some innovation on the part of banks to create more flexible mechanisms to enable refugee hosting countries in the region to access concessional financing, and that is loans with lower interest rates and favourable terms that are generally only available to developing countries. These financing arrangements are designed not only to enable middle-income countries to receive these kinds of loans, but also to make that funding available to support not just immediate emergency needs, but also longer-term development and policy reforms in key sectors to support sustainable development. And in September, at the Obama summit, it was announced that these arrangements would not be limited to the Syria situation, but would be made more broadly available to middle-income countries under the World Bank's Global Concessional Financing Facility. This has been described as unprecedented, and it does hold out the possibility that some of the traditional silos that were faced in the past might be overcome. Importantly, the availability of this more flexible funding is premised upon commitments by host governments to recognise refugees' rights, particularly the right to work. For example, under the Jordan Compact announced in February, in return for grants and concessional financing, Jordan committed to allow Syrian refugees to apply for work permits, set up businesses, make investments, and be guaranteed a certain percentage of jobs created under private sector and donor-funded projects. Jordan is also required to implement a package of uh, structural reforms as it enters a new agreement with the IMF. And whether these avoid some of the harsh social impacts experienced with structural adjustment in the 1980s 
and whether it serves to reduce rather than exacerbate inequality will depend on how these reforms are designed and implemented and whether adequate safeguards are put in place to avoid negative impacts on the most vulnerable. Uh, another initiative is the establishment of special economic zones close to refugee camps where both Jordanians and Syrians will be permitted to work, with preferential rules being negotiated to facilitate access to EU markets. The question will be whether or not these create dignified and sustainable livelihoods for Syrians and Jordanians alike, recognising that in the absence of adequate wages and labour protections, special economic zones may not necessarily lead to reduced vulnerability. So the jury is out in terms of whether these initiatives will lead to sustainable development and self-reliance and the recognition of rights for refugees and their hosts in the Syria situation, but there does appear to be some openness to new thinking. A review of previous efforts to link development and humanitarian approaches in refugee response should prompt us to be sceptical of grand claims that we are now facing a watershed moment. The international community has expressed its support for initiatives like this many times in the past. And the test will be whether sufficient political will exists to overcome institutional inertia and to develop workable and well-funded mechanisms to bring about a shift in practice. While there does appear to be genuine improvement in facilitating cross-institutional linkages, we are yet to see the extent to which certain lessons have been learned from the past. One of these is whether refugees and host communities will be adequately included in the process. In the 1960s, failure to consider refugees' skills and existing livelihood strategies in designing agricultural settlement schemes led to many refugees walking off settlements in search of alternative and more appropriate livelihood activities. Today, it's customary and, may I say, even fashionable to talk about refugees' economic agency but their limited inclusion in heavily top-down planning process does not reflect a recognition of this in practice. The question is whether this can be overcome and the extent to which genuinely sustainable outcomes can be achieved in their absence. Further, while the Syria situation has fermented interesting innovation, we are yet to see whether these initiatives will be extended to other situations that are less high profile and less likely to result in onward movements of refugees to the global north. Finally, I argue that the success of efforts to integrate refugees into host country economies in regions of origin will depend in part on whether the international community can reach some level of agreement on what international responsibility sharing in relation to refugees entails. Today, one question that arises is whether funding assistance to refugee hosting regions can in and of itself constitute a sufficient contribution to responsibility sharing in the face of increasingly widespread practices amongst northern states to avoid respecting their own protection obligations, particularly through measures of deterrence. I suggest that as long as northern states treat overseas aid as a way of containing refugees in regions of origin and justifying attempts to avoid their own protection obligations, the results will not be sustainable no matter how well-linked, how well-funded, or how well-designed those interventions may be. The reasons are twofold. First, while improving conditions in countries of origin and asylum may reduce the need for people to move in a manner that is forced, 
it doesn't necessarily reduce migration. In fact, research shows that certain levels of economic development are correlated with greater population mobility for reasons that are complex but include the fact that with greater education and resources, people have both the means and expanded pathways to migrate. That's not to say that development can't contribute positively to the stabilisation of refugee producing and hosting countries, but that people will respond to those changed circumstances in a range of ways. So the use of development assistance to make people stay in their place is ill-advised. Secondly, strategies of containment in the absence of broader commitments to protection will be self-defeating. A recent study by the Overseas Development Institute demonstrates that northern states' policies of deterrence have ripple effects in the global south, encouraging southern states to implement their own measures to undermine refugee rights. Thus, northern states cannot push back refugees whilst expecting southern states will be willing to maintain respect for the rights that are so crucial to successfully integrating refugees into host country economies and societies, such as the right to work, freedom of movement, and so on. We cannot expect that providing aid to refugees on the one hand, whilst undermining the international refugee protection regime on the other, will achieve sustainable results. To be successful, support for joined up humanitarian and development assistance must form part of coherent, comprehensive refugee policies that are based first and foremost upon the fundamental norms of refugee protection. <laughs>